Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this exciting episode where we got to attend the Light and Magic Press Day, which means we got to do a lot of exciting and very nerve-wracking interviews. Yeah, roundtable interviews. So you all know because you're reading the title of this, this podcast, but we got to ask Lawrence Kasdan two questions. So that is great. <laughs> we have that audio and we have that here for you. All of these are roundtable interviews, and I think a lot of really interesting things were discussed, so I really hope you enjoy. We just wrapped up these interviews. It was a wild ride, and again, can't wait for you to listen to it. We aren't sure when this is going to be airing, but Light and Magic comes out July 27th on Disney+, Plus. all six parts. It's a six-hour amazing ride and look into ILM and the history of ILM and Truly, I feel like we as fans are so lucky to have this six-part documentary series that feels so akin to these old special effects and behind-the-scenes specials that I think Caitlin and I watched when we were young. And we now have this sort of, I don't know, a primer, basically, for the history of it starting. It's so zeroed in on ILM versus other parts about Lucasfilm. And it's just amazing. So it was a joy to talk with these creators. We talked to Lawrence Kasdan. We talked to, I cannot believe we're going to say this, visual effects masters Phil Tippett and Dennis Buren. And we also talked to Janet Lewin, who is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of ILM. A lot of cool things were discussed in that. I asked her about the sequel trilogy. I don't know. It was great. And she really helped bring stagecraft to ILM and to Star Wars. So it's great. It's a great conversation. She was super interesting. Everyone was super interesting. So without further ado, here are the interviews. We're going to start with Lawrence Kasdan. Then we're going to go to Phil Tippett and Dennis Muren's joint roundtable interview, and then our interview with Janet Lewin. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. Can you tell me a little bit about the differences between your experiences directing narrative film and approaching this? I believe this is your first uh, long-form documentary project. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah. It was my first long form. I had made a little documentary just before this with my wife about a diner that we used to eat at that was closing. And when we made that documentary, I loved it. I loved making it, shooting it, cutting it. I loved everything about it. And I started meeting documentary people and I met the people at Imagine and they said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, what about the history of uh, visual effects and they said well we have a, a relationship with Disney and Lucasfilm what about that and I said well that, that's where I grew up I've been around ILM for all these years that's perfect and I wanted it to be about the people not the technology and that's what I hope the show is about I was so amazed by this collection of geniuses and I wanted to make a show about that uh, thank you for your time, Mr. Kazan. As your as a director, what was the research and editing process like for this entire production? Well, it was fantastic because Lucasfilm is probably the best archive, best documented enterprise in movies. Because George, right from the beginning, wanted behind the scenes. He wanted, he kept all the paintings. He kept all the drawings. He kept all the set design. 
And so when we went in here, it was richer than any of us thought. And they gave us access to things that have never been seen in the world. And so what it gives you over the course of the six hours, I think there are several occasions where you hear them trying to figure out an effect. And we actually have them in the room trying to figure out the effect. Well, that's kind of astounding. And uh, that, that kind of thing happened a lot. And I, I find that very emotional and stirring. And uh, I like that part of it. You're talking about uh, a human part of the commentary that I really appreciated, especially when you have the moments like with Phil Tippett talks about his bipolarity, about the power of art in his life. Uh, and regarding that, and also thinking about the general audience that maybe they are not so into how Star Wars was made or Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I see this documentary as, also as a leadership kind of testimony uh, how different leaders come from different occasions, how they stick together, how they have to have the parts, kind of to the challenge. Can you tell me about that aspect of your documentary, if you think about it in that project? Mario, you're exactly right, because that was one of my things I wanted to focus on. You know, I have grandchildren now, and I want them to be look at these shows and say, oh, you know, if I want to create something, it's possible. And what are the elements? You have to have the will, and then you have to figure out what are the means. And these people started when they were 10 years old, 12 years old. The effects that you see at the beginning with these people are astounding. How did they do that, you know? And um, so I wanted it to be about what inspires that. And to some degree, it was George, because he put together this group of eccentric geniuses, and they came from all walks of life. They weren't movie people. And yet they all engaged in this enterprise that for 40 years they've been helping directors achieve what's in their head. And sometimes it's not even in their head. Sometimes a director will say, I want something like this. What do you got? And these people won't go into the closet and pull something out. They will say, we're going to create something just for this shot. In doing this documentary, I'm sure you spend countless amount of hours thinking about ILM. After, you know, launching it now, what would you say is the one main characteristic of ILM that jumped out to you in making this? Yeah, you know, there was, when I went into it, I had a hope. And my hope was, I, can, I suspected that the emotional atmosphere at ILM for 40 years was unique, that there was a kind of cooperation among these geniuses that was astounding. And that, yes, they were competitive, and yes, they worked hard, and yes, they competed with their ideas, but they basically would turn to their friends, their compadres, their colleagues, and say, how are we going to do this? How we solve this problem? This is the problem of the day. And so coming up with that in an community in which people care about each other. I found that to be the most attractive part of the whole thing. Thank you for your time, Mr. Kastan. I have a question that's not related to light and magic. There is a cult Turkish movie from the 80s called The Man Who Saves the World. It is also known as Turkish Star Wars because it didn't have a budget for visual effects. So some footage from Star Wars used. Have you ever heard of this movie and what would you like to say about the 
effects of Star Wars visuality on world cinema in general? The effect of Star Wars on... World cinema in general, yes. Well, I think everything changed when A New Hope came out. And you can see in the show that these people who've been working there for 40 years, there was a moment when they first saw A New Hope and the people who worked on it on New Hope were astounded, just like the moviegoers. Like, Can we do this? Wait a minute, that guy, he's a car mechanic, but he's got a great idea for this. That guy is a painter. He's a great painter. And this guy, he can make models. And those skills all put together with brilliant people created this thing that is so potent. It has effect, Im, Im, um, impacted movies ever since, since 1977. And the people who did it in 1976 and 1975, their life was changed forever by being part of that. Hi, Lawrence. Thanks so much for your time. I was wondering, one of the things that is so special about Light and Magic, I loved it, by the way, was how you interviewed a lot of people that you've worked with throughout the years. How was the experience of interviewing your friends? It was great. And that was one of the biggest pleasures of the whole enterprise. And since I was focused from the get-go on the people, it was great to come back to people who I knew known a little bit, people I'd known a lot, and now it's much later, and they they're looking back, I'm looking back, and generations after them that followed them are even looking back. And some of those younger people were looking back at the original people and going, Wow, you know, that I could even be in a room with these people was amazing. So I found the whole thing sort of emotional. I found it great the you know they are so brilliant and to see them generously sharing their gifts with each other and coming up with a product that maybe even the client didn't even know they wanted the client may have come to them and said i want something like this and what ilm has come up with thousands of times is something better than they imagined and I, I love that part of it. They've really been a part of the creative process for all these movies. When you approach a, a more recent movie writing like The Force Awakens or Solo, um, how much are you considering the visual effects process and the achievability of certain shots? And has your answer to that question maybe changed after working on this documentary? It hasn't changed because I think Years ago, and it wasn't just when I got to Force Awakening, years ago, people realized that you can do anything. That, you know, a digital technology made anything possible. The, uh, you know, the lineage of physical effects helped in, inform all these effects. And now we've seen people who want to go back to mix them better, you know, have it be a physical effect and a digital effect at the same time. So at no time in writing those or on Empire Strikes Back, did I have to say, can that be done? George would say, we'll figure it out. Or, you know, Stephen would say, I want something like this, but I'll make it work. You know, I, I mean, you guys have got to tell me how to do it. And so that has never changed. And there's never do you hear in this group of people, no, forget it, can't have it. They never say that. So I think that's really wonderful. 
Hi, Mr. Kazdan. I'm so excited. Um, now, in this light and magic, it was amazing. Like as as we were saying, you know, these these interviewees were so candid and comfortable, and you're interviewing your friends. But if some of them were holding back on information, anything like that, did you have any secrets to pull those info out of them? Like maybe give them their favorite drink, paint us a picture. You know, I, I had an incredible producing staff from Imagine. They've made a lot of docs and a lot of the people don't work at Imagine, but they're freelancers that Imagine has worked with. I was exhilarated by the researchers, the producers, the archivists, they could come up with anything. And also we had Lucasfilm through their doors to the archive open for us. So there's a lot of stuff in this six hours that's never been seen before. And so that opens a lot of doors for the people in the interview. And you're able to show that same person 30 years younger figuring out that problem. And I find that and that opens things up a lot. And I've always found that if you ask people, if you really are seeing people and listening to people, they will open up like flowers. And I didn't have people I felt were holding back. And if there was a slight hesitation, I would go to that space and say, well, tell me more about that. Tell me what you felt at that moment. Because that's not the first thing people would tell you, but it can be the second or third thing. Listening all the stories that your colleagues and friends uh, told you for making this uh, documentary, I would like to know if you have a special anecdote that you keep the most or that impact on you and why. No, I, I don't. And I got to say, this is sort of true of my life too, which is I love being in an atmosphere. I love hearing people tell you the details of something that is no longer available to us. So what this, all these people in these interviews, they had the key and they could tell me what happened back then behind closed doors and who helped you and which people came together to make that thing work. So I don't have a favorite. I have a feeling that a, a creative, community was made there. And it is very emotional to me because these people are so appealing and so brilliant. And so many of them decided, you know, when they were 10 years old, they saw a logo for Industrial Light and Magic and it represented everything they wanted, all the romance, all the drama. And so many of those people saw it as children wound up working at ILM. And it's, it's an incredible situation to have the place be the fulfillment of all these people's dreams. Thank you so much for being part of our lives for the past 40 or so years. Uh, mm -hmm. Light, of, Light of Magic is incredible. Um, how did you go about condensing all of these amazing stories from all of these creative geniuses into just six hours? <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. Um, because I'm sure there are going to be people who say, six hours? What do I want to see all that for? But I liked your attitude. And um, there is, I had an amazing group of editors, great producers. And whenever I'd go into an interview, uh, we had done a lot of background work. And we knew where it fell and what we thought the story was. And yet we were completely open to, is this going to take us in a new place, a new direction? That's fine. 
I wanted that to happen. I wanted people to surprise me all the time and say, well, since we're talking about that, let me tell you about this. And that is where some of the best stuff comes from. And it, yeah, you could do a lot more than six hours, but you know, you have to have the desire. And I had the desire to see how did this happen? How did these people come to be there? How much did George know when he put together this group of, you know, people with all kinds of skills that weren't movie people? How did he have an instinct for that? And then once they came together, how did those very different people join together and become colleagues and friends and compatriots? That's what interested me. And I think that you get a lot of that from the essence of these people. Mr. Kazan, so great to talk to you. Um, to kind of wrap this up, uh, having worked with ILM throughout the years, what did you learn through creating this documentary that surprised you? I think, you know, I went into it looking for the soul of the company. You know, you don't always think of that. You know, you think about um, prudential insurance. You don't think, I want to do a thing about the soul of prudential insurance. There probably is a soul of prudential insurance, but this one is very obvious that people who came there had a passion for this and that they stayed with it for years and years. You know, John Knoll, who created Photoshop with his brother, um, he never stopped working. and He went right back to work the next day. You know, not all of us would make that choice if we created Photoshop. But John Knoll loves doing this work. And he went right back there and has stayed another 20 years. He's just, and that's what the place is like. It's about enormous passion for solving these problems and for creating new frontiers, because that's really what they do. Thank you. A lot of the work that you guys did, especially, you know, in the early 90s with Nascent CG, holds up remarkably well and in some ways is better than a lot of the CG being made today? What would you attribute that to? Well, just having people that, you know, particularly, you know, for with Dennis and I, you know, um, uh, you know, we were, you know, very well educated with the, uh, you know, pretty much the same techniques as, you know, Ray Harryhausen used, except the, technology had significantly changed and um you know so that that was uh you know but we always have to adapt to technology you know no, no matter what you know so we went from stop motion to go motion to computer graphics and um that was pretty much the the trajectory and each time you had to you know relearn what um you know i i would give like anything like go motion or uh computer graphics was like your hand is stradivarius and um now you have to learn how to play it and so that was always a vertical climb yeah i you know i started off i was sort of rooted in the stuff that had been going on in the 20s and 30s from uh you know king kong and those even the ray areas and stuff but going on to star wars i thought this is a way too complicated way to do this work there's much simpler ways to do it but after being on her for a little while a few months seeing what john was trying to do and what george wanted i could start to see you know there's advantage to this i just had never had 
the money or the real interest to try to go somewhere else because I thought what was working was working and it was really the tools for an expression of your art. But then I kind of saw that, no, there's you can actually change the tools and maybe the tools can, can benefit the art. And so since that time, I've always just been curious and always looking for new ways to do things. Whether I use them or not is a whole different thing. But knowing what's out there as far as possibilities, to, if I can get them to fit into what's in my head as an idea of how something should look and doesn't, maybe I can see a way to put the tool set together or make a new tool that will fix something that I think needs fixing in the, and nowadays on the CG, for example. Yeah, I came in late on, on Star Wars and would go in Venice. Um, um, Ken and um, Dennis, uh, they were on the night crew. And it was, you know, introduced to the, the uh, motion control technology, <clears throat> which led to go motion, you know, um, you know, within a, a couple of movies. And, um, you know, so I, once I saw that stuff, I realized, wow, you know what you could do with this? You could do what stop motion animators had wanted to do for years and successfully was to have blurs on, on your characters. And, um, yeah. So then we, you know, we had the, the resources to, um, do it. There was this notion in Hollywood that CGI, uh, when uh, Jurassic Park was uh, released, the first one, uh, that CGI was the ultimate tool to, to do all kinds of effects. So how do you both feel about how practical uh, effects have slowly made a comeback and have been more and more included in the uh, visual effects mix uh, recently? Well, I think the quotient of practical stuff is <clears throat> really minimal compared to the computer graphic stuff. I mean, it isn't until you get, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, directors like Christopher Nolan who really insist on doing practical things. And if a director insists, then yeah. But um, in many ways, uh, you know, a project like Quran's, you know, Gravity couldn't have been uh, executed in any other way. Yeah, and I, you know, I sort of think that, uh, you know, there's room for everything. And there's a reason why there's that CG has kind of took off because it could do things that you just could not do at all with models and still can't do with models. And if they and now they can write those into the scripts and the stories can tell stories that they weren't able to tell before. And you really see that, you know, especially with Phantom Menace, that, that was a breakthrough film for George to be able to make all those cities and landscapes and robotic creature robots walking around with that actors i mean that had not been done before and there's dozens of them and that's all through that film that film just illuminated i think for everybody what the possibilities were for storytelling which is what he wanted uh george wanted uh how you can open up people's imaginations and entertain them now and now with what's going on all over there's got to be i don't know what 10,000 15,000 effect shots being done every year now, I'm just guessing on that number, but I don't think I'm very far off. Hi, my name is Caitlin from Skytalkers Podcast. It's great to talk to you both. Your decades-long friendship really stood out in the documentary. Were there ever any challenges in balancing your friendship and work life? Too many. <laughs> no, I don't think so, because we, we we went in different paths. I stayed at own because I like working on big movies, 
And Phil had this dream, you know, to make his own sort of thing and wanted to be independent. So, and we kept touch through all those years. And, you know, when Phil could come back and we wanted to back at ILM, we'd get him back in and he'd go out and make his film. So I don't think it's, you know, it's been great because it's, uh, you know, we're in a lot of ways, we're completely different people, but we have the same, you know, interest in our, in our background growing up. And now we have life experiences that we can share, you know, so we're, we're very uh, lucky to be able to have that history, you know, for like 45 years or 50 years, whatever it's been, maybe 55 years. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> Hi, I'm Charlotte from Sky Talkers. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Um, I was wondering if there is a film or project that stands out to you as personally where you felt your skills improved the most. You know, all, I, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Could be all of that. that's good for me. The most challenging one, and maybe the improving, was, you know, probably for actually for Empire, where we had to put all this stuff together to get that done. All the battles and the Walker sequence looking photo real and everything was quite a real challenge. But that whole period for me, with you know, when we were doing the Abyss and Jurassic, and before that T two, being able to get the pieces together for that and seeing and having to learn things I didn't care about, like, you know, lookup tables for color, you know, size of film grain, you know, uh, just incredible stuff that I had not really ever thought of. That was quite a challenge during that whole period. And yeah, the, the stuff that Dennis did lighting the Tauntaun walkers was um, really old school, you know, with um, the, the sets were, uh, model sets of the Hoth and, um, you know, the backgrounds were painted by Michael Pingrazio, which we were so lucky to run across. And none of the stuff looks realistic, but it's just beautiful, you know, and it just takes you away. It's, it has a very old school look with a, mo a modern coat of paint on it. And, you know, I think a lot of stuff that, that Dennis and I, you know, uh, agree on. I mean, you're always, for these movies, aspiring for something that's real, realistic, but it's never going to be uh, real. And so you, uh, the, the best you can do is make something hyper real, which is what filmmakers do all the time um, to, um, yeah, I mean, everything was really a prototype. Everything we did, we tried something new. I don't think we're seeing a lot of that in CG. I think that would really help CG work if you can take it to that next level of hyper-real. You know, they're getting it to look real, but that's not really what you want it to be engaging. And that can mean you can cheat this, you can brighten that, you can, it's okay, this doesn't look right, but if this is, is bigger in the frame, are the teeth brighter than they really should be, but you're thinking about, am I going to die? All that stuff is what, what we used to add to stuff. And I think that needs, that's what directors do when they direct the live actors, they try to, and the actors try to put it in, but it's hard for effects people to try to put that in the CG world, especially when someone's, you know, supervisors working on one or 2000 shots, you know, too many shots. So we're here to talk about light and magic. And I'm wondering what you guys think of why there's such a fascination with behind the scenes in movie making, as you've been in many of these uh, documentaries? Well, um, 
I, I had been working on this, you know, movie that's been recently released called Mad God. And a number of my, guys at my studio uh, were inspired uh, by, you know, the documentaries on Star Wars and Robocop and whatnot. And that's what they had wanted to do, you know, uh, is work with practical things and lights and um, and models. And, you know, that, that ship had sailed, so they were computer graphic artists. And this project that I wanted to do, Mad God, was you know pretty much a stop motion project and so that that uh gave them the you know opportunity to um you know do what they'd always dreamed of doing work with you know practical things and it might be that in the cg world i think there's a sameness that you can see and it's hard to tell where that comes from some of it is technological the texturing the artificiality here but shot after shot after shot goes by, and at some point you get dull. Dull. Maybe there's too many shots, but maybe there the expression hasn't been put into each shot. And when you do it the old way, when Phil does it his way, or Harry Osen does it, or anybody, you're sitting on that shot, setting it up. You decide what's important, and everything is aimed for what is important. It's not a lot of neutral things assembled together, and it just runs itself. You're just thinking all the time. I want to show this. I don't want to show that. I want to seeing too much here. That should move faster there. I'm ready to go. Okay. And you start. But in your mind, you already are seeing it as an individual important thing, as opposed to one of many dozens and dozens of things that are being assembled by a lot of different people. Yeah, That's, That can't be put into CG, but it's hard to put it into CG, but it can be. Yeah, it's very much like doing a painting. You know, as you're setting up, you know, you may move things around, you know, quite a bit as you're as you're kind of finding out what you want to do. I remember there was a, uh, you know, when we were setting up the walker shots, um, you know, Dennis had lit the shots and um, we were shutting down for lunch and the, the lights were being turned off one at a time. And. I said, just stop, stop turning off the lights and called Dennis over and said, look, look at, look at what happened. It's like the foreground walker was in shadow and the background one was in sunlight. And it was like, oh, wow, that gave it a different form of like atmospheric, you know, perspective. And, you know, uh, so many things happen like accidents like that. Gentlemen, an honor to speak with you both. If you could with all of your experiences and vast knowledge, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger selves? Keep working, keep doing it, follow your passion. It sounds trivial. It sounds like you've heard it before, but there's something to be said for it. Be different and uh, be curious and study what you want to do and study things you don't think you want to do. If you want to make movies, study real movies and, but, and not just, the effectsy films, but then you want to see how they fit into it. But I, and it's never been a better time to be a filmmaker or a media maker now ever than there is right now. And everyone's, oh, the distribution, everyone's making them, can't get my film out there. Well, you've at least made something, right? So people can see it. And in our day, you could hardly even make anything. So it's a great time to experiment and, you know, go for it. The, the term passion is interesting because it comes from the Latin pati, which means to suffer, like 
Jesus on the cross. And that, that's certainly been my experience, you know, uh, part of its result of me being bipolar is like once I get started on stuff, I'm uh, like ugly on an ape. You know, and it just like I just won't stop until I crash. But it's uh, it really is that that, you know, kind of hero's journey of going down paths that lead to paths that lead to doors that lead to paths. And um, you just don't know exactly where you're going. But, <clears throat> you know, that that's the journey. And sometimes you can, you know, run into like <laughs> animals that want to eat you. And let me just add also that it's also possible that when what is in your head and what you want to do, most people don't care about that, you know, and it, and so you're not necessarily going to become really successful at this or being on big films or something. And then you've got a decision to make. Am I going to be an artist working on my own for myself? Maybe find something that's fine to do. It, you know, you got to make a living somehow. And, uh, you know, so there's it doesn't have to it, if it's really hard for you doing something, then maybe really try something else, you know, because this work for all the this torment that Phil can talk about, and I went through some of it too, you still get enough back in return that you want to keep doing it, or you can't help yourself from doing it. You know, if you're not enjoying it at some point, I think you should not be doing it because it's too hard on you. There should be some, at the end, you add up the balance sheet. And you're better off and happier having done it. Hi, Dennis and Phil. It's a pleasure to be talking to you guys. Uh, you guys are absolute heroes. Uh, Phil, I also want to congratulate you on the release of Mad God. And I guess I would like to end with a very simple, but I think uh, fun question, which is uh, Star Wars has been obsessed over for over 40 years now. Uh, what's a shot or a special effect or a little thing that you guys love that you think hasn't been as obsessed over as the rest of the movies. Oh man, I got no idea. Phil, you start. I have I got no idea. <laughs> Could you rephrase the question in a different way? Yeah, uh sure. What's a special effect you did for Star Wars that you love that you think doesn't get the love it deserves? No, I can't think of anything, you know. I mean, everybody seems to like everything, you know. Um, I recall that when um, Empire was released, uh, I guess the numbers that came back was the <laughs> the Tauntaun, you know, was uh, not as uh, popular as the the walking machines, but the walking machines were a, a set piece. And the um, Tauntaun was nothing more than a horse, you know. What was important about those shots was Luke, you know. So the Tauntaun was just a thing that took him from place to place. But uh, all the attention was really focused on his character that George had developed. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. As an engineer, I am fascinated by this intersection of technology and art that you are part of. Which side of those two roads, which road did you start in that brought you to this intersection? Well, I was on the third road, which is production. So I always talk about the intersection of production, creativity, and innovation. 
but yes, art is also a through line um, of all of that. But um, I I actually started as a as a temp in the purchasing department 28 years ago, and kind of wove my way through the organization, but really found my passion in producing, visual effects producing. Um, and you know, I I think of myself as creative, but that's not my um, strong suit. I'm really more on the business side of the house, um, but I love that partnership with creative and really, you know, providing the structure and the support and the environment for people to do their best work. Hello, the evolution of ILM is mythology unto itself. What was important for you about telling this story? Well, I think it's really about celebrating the fact that that we're filmmakers through and through and that no challenge is too hard uh that that's part of our dna that we we love achieving the impossible and you know and being in the fabric of these amazing films that inspire so many people around the world um and that that continues into the future it's not as though it's it was just you know back in the day that there was a certain methodology or a certain way of working we've continued to evolve and adapt and um i think it's important for for people to know that we have the same spirit and dna um of of the our legacy but that we're we're still inventing and innovating um every single day of the year Hi, Janet. Thanks so much for your time today. Um, I was wondering, you are credited as the visual effects producer on all three films in the sequel trilogy. And I was wondering if your experience and work on those films specifically um, informed the development of the volume at all, and if you could speak to that at all. Sure. Um, not those three films per se. However, I think every film you know, we build our pipeline and we build our capabilities on uh, in every single film um, to get to where we are today. But it was really Rogue One of the Star Wars films that um, really moved the needle in virtual production. And part of that was uh, Greg Frazier, who was our DP on uh, Rogue One. And then he was also the DP on The Mandalorian, which is where you saw the volume really in all of all its glory. Um, but, you know, for Rogue One, we we didn't have the right pipeline and technology to do what we ultimately were able to achieve on The Mandalorian with real-time, in-camera visual effects for the run of show. But we dabbled in it um, on Rogue One, and we used a lot of our virtual camera tools as well to for Gareth to kind of find his shots in a more collaborative way. Um, so those things proved that it was possible to do what we ultimately did on, on The Mandalorian, of course, together with John Favreau and his pioneering experience in virtual production on uh, Jungle Book and Lion King. So, Hello. Uh, I'm very curious if you could tell me about um, both yours and ILM's working relationship with filmmaker Lawrence Kasdan in making this documentary. Um, what were your interactions with him like and how did you ensure that the company was represented in the most accurate way possible? Um, well, you know, 
Lawrence Kasdan has been a longtime collaborator for both Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic. And I think when he got involved with uh, Solo, um, with Ron Howard, he, um, you know, sort of had this brainchild about wanting to honor the legacy of all these, you know, the visual effects uh, contributions to some of the most, um, you know, memorable films uh, of all time. Um, we gave him sort of unfettered access to anything he wanted to explore for his documentary. It was really his vision, though. It wasn't, you know, he was coming at it from the vantage point of a seasoned filmmaker and writer and wanting to tell a story that, you know, you didn't have to be steeped in visual effects or even really in, in the film industry to enjoy it. Um, so, you know, he had, he interviewed lots of people who've been at the company for a long, long time and could tell interesting stories about, you know, how, how they achieved their work. Hi, uh, ILM uh, closed its uh, miniature shop many years ago to produce only uh, digital effects. So I was wondering if you ever considered having a workshop again at ILM to let CG artists experiment also with practical arts, practical sculpting, model making, or prop building in order to include real textures in a hybrid effects, if I may say so. Yeah, that's a great question. And we don't have a workshop per se, but we do still employ people who got their start as miniature modelers and even motion control operators and traditional map painters. We have a lot of people who, you know, learned their craft painting on, on shower glass doors and then had to learn a new way of working in computer graphics. Um, but I will say that, you know, one of the really fun things about being, you know, involved in the Star Wars films is that, and episodic shows, is that there's a desire to honor our legacy with those kinds of handcrafted visual effects. So we do actually build a lot of miniatures for the Mandalorian, as an example. Um, the Razor Crest we built as a miniature. Some of the environments that we then photograph and put into our volume, um, loads, as we call them, the, the real-time um, images up on the LED screens are from miniatures that we build. So we absolutely love to leverage all of these legacy tools, just like you say, to kind of have this layered approach that is um, that you can feel is more kind of handcrafted than you might get in just traditional computer graphics. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much for your time today. This show, Light and Magic, looks to the past of Star Wars, what, what was the language of visual effects and you know movie making. Uh, what were the biggest lessons you guys took while making this show as to what has to be the visual language of Star Wars in the future? Well, as you know, Light and Magic isn't just about Star Wars, right? It's about our, our you know vast array of projects that ILM has contributed to over the last 47 years. And I think you know, we're, we continue to get involved in any project that is creatively um, inspiring to us. So we're working on 40 different shows at the moment, including feature animation projects, episodic, live action 
films, uh, immersive entertainment, and kind of everything in between. And I think that when we look to our past, we can see that we've got just these amazingly talented, creative individuals who um, love to solve problems and and take chances and leaps of faith to realize, you know, new um, visions for for whether it's Star Wars or any other project that is um, in house. The cool thing about ILM's relationship with Lucasfilm is that we have a transparency really with that studio. I mean, we're one company, um, but it's a symbiotic relationship. So ILM and our innovation roadmap and some of the, the breakthroughs that, that we're making can help influence Lucasfilm's storytelling. And likewise, where we can have a look at the, at the slate and know what is, is, uh, coming down the road and kind of get prepared for that in advance. So it it really um, is a is a wonderful way for us to partner with with Lucasfilm. Um, and creatively, we have, I think, you know, I would say visual effects is in the fabric of the Star Wars films and any kind of Star Wars um, product. And we have, you know, seasoned creatives who provide that bench of talent and are are sought after by all of the filmmakers to understand what is it that is Star Wars. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the answer is it's visual effects. I hope that answered your question. So obviously in the filmmakers that you work with, so much of like the potential of what you can bring to a film depends on what potential a filmmaker sees and what, you know, Industrial Light and Magic can do. And also there's a gulf of a generational difference when you have older filmmakers you still work with who grew up in a much different era and a much more limited era and a new generation who has only had CG at their disposal. So how do you find those conversations differ generationally, depending on how the filmmakers might look at what you can bring to things? Um, you did freeze for a moment um, on, on my Zoom, but I think I understood what you're asking. If I can paraphrase, you're saying... Sure. Um, you know, obviously we are working with seasoned filmmakers and new filmmakers who may have a different understanding of visual effects and the techniques we can use and how do we navigate that? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. And how do those conversations differ or do those conversations differ? Do you find the younger filmmakers do look at things differently because they grew up without the same sorts of restrictions or tools that the older filmmakers had? Um, I, I would say maybe the younger filmmakers can be a little more ambitious in terms of, you know, their, um, appetites for, for visual effects on a, in a short schedule, um, you know, because computer graphics moves way faster than the techniques of, uh, of the older generation, you know, with miniatures, motion control, you know, things of that nature, but I think that all filmmakers are really savvy. The filmmakers who we work with especially are very savvy about, um, you know, what is at their disposal. And oftentimes they really rely on a visual effects supervisor to guide them to, to, and that's something that ILM does all the time. We, we will um, assess methodologies and give, you know, give advice, but also, you know, sort of an analyze 
what the what the cost schedule and creative implications are for approaching work in one one way or another um so i think that is something that filmmakers really come to ilm to help them um you know sort of articulate their their methodology and their vision hi hi janet uh, glad to meet you we are the one of the names that helped stagecraft technology to be used in the Star Wars franchise. In what ways do you think this technology has changed the cinema industry and visual effects styles? Stagecraft is, you know, as we were saying earlier, sort of the culmination of many, many years of ILM's experience in virtual production. The interesting thing is, you know, that while on the Mandalorian, it is actually really part of the of of the filmmaking, you know, fabric, um, and but that isn't always the case. You can use the same methodology for a sequence or a set of shots or pickups or whatever. But for the Mandalorian, I think what what we have kind of discovered is that the real benefit is that by being able to visualize your shots in real time on set with your filmmakers, with your production designer, your DP and visual effects supervisor, but you're making better choices, you know, and um, one of the anecdotes that uh, Rob Bredo, who's our chief creative officer, talks a lot about is um, on Solo, they used LEDs for uh, outside of the Millennium Falcon. And when Alden Ehrenreich, who was playing uh, Han Solo, first goes to hyperspace, you actually can see the reflection of the of hyperspace in his eyes. Um, and so the the DP suddenly reconceived of the shot to really, you know, zoom in on his eye, and you get the sense of amazement, but also the reflection of of hyperspace and you probably would would never have even thought of a shot like that without these kinds of tools so you know those happen every single day on the mandalorian it's um that's what keeps it really fresh and exciting and fun and it's you're you're not handing off problems downstream that haven't been um thought through you know the using stagecraft means you have to be a little more disciplined you've got to plan and approve things earlier in the process than than most films um, that don't have a, a virtual production aspect, um, but the payoff is huge. So, and it can be financially um, attractive too, if you're able to get a whole bunch of visual effects shots in camera, um, that can save you a lot of time and money as well. So it can kind of be that trifecta of quality time and, uh, and, uh, economics. Hi, Janet. To wrap us up here, uh, I want to know, when people finish this documentary, what do you hope they come away with knowing about ILM or its legacy? Uh, I would say that we are filmmakers who are passionate about the craft of visual storytelling, um, that innovation is in our DNA, but it's a really fun place to work with very collaborative people who, you know, really elevate the craft and also elevate the, the experience for filmmakers and for all of us in, in the company. Okay, so those were our interviews for the Light and Magic Press Day. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We had 
such a good time talking to them and hearing their answers. I think particularly with Phil and Dennis, I don't know, their answers really made me think about the history of visual effects and how it's changed through the years, what the future of visual effects looks like. I don't know. Their their answers in particular really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. I, I loved everyone, obviously, um, but their answers in particular really got me thinking. I think because the two of them were together during their roundtable, yeah. so they kind of bounced off each other and obviously they're best friends. Um, and that's something that's really explored in the documentary, which I thought was really great. And, but they have a lot of different perspectives on visual effects that I think you can glean from the documentary and also from the interview, the round table too. So I don't know, their, their answers really kind of have stuck with me and I'm going to be thinking a lot about in the future, but, oh my gosh, it was such a fun time. And I'm super grateful that we had this opportunity um, kind of can't believe it. I was so nervous beforehand, <laughs> uh, but we had a really good time. Yeah, we we really, really did. Again, so grateful to Lucasfilm and ILM for this opportunity. We, I don't even, we're just so grateful. I mean, I can't even handle that we had Lawrence Kasdan yeah. on a Sky Talkers episode. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God. One thing that you were mentioning though, that I thought was really cool is that we did get to ask Phil Tippett and Dennis Muren about their friendship, which... Mm-hmm. Is cool because we're a podcast based off of friendship too. So we got to ask like two best friends about their friendship and like working together. So that was great. And then also Phil's discussion about passion, I think was. was oh awesome. yeah, he yeah talking about the root of the word passion in you know the Greek origin of it. Charlotte and I are texting each other at the same or Latin, time. I can't remember. I think- <laughs> Charlotte and I are texting each other at the same time going, okay, Phil, let's keep going. Keep going. Go. Yeah. We're like, go into the word origins. You know, we love those. Star Wars tragedy. Star Wars Greek tragedy originated Greek word, like all of it. It was, yeah, it was, it was super great. Yeah. I had such a good time and I'm really glad that we were able to have this opportunity and bring it to you all today. So uh, like we said, we're not really sure when we're going to get the go ahead to release this. So it could be before Light and Magic comes out, could be after, not really sure, but July 27th, Light and Magic. All six episodes are going to be available on Disney Plus and they're so good. So, so good. I got a little emotional at the end of it. Um, Oh my God, me too. Yeah. But I think if you're a fan of Star Wars, if you're a fan of how movies are made, Charlotte always says this, it's a miracle that films get made and this whole documentary series really celebrates that. So I think, I think you guys are going to love it. I love it. What's not to love, honestly. It's just... (laughs) making the time to sit down and be able to watch it all <laughs> yeah I, I'm gonna rewatch that all the time I yeah think. it's one of those ones it's one of those <laughs> <laughs> it's like empire of dreams exactly it's, it's, exactly it's like the beginning empire of dreams and the director and the Jedi that's kind of the world that this documentary sits in mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. so excited <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. We will have another episode coming out um, specifically about light and magic uh, with without the, the interviews. So be on the lookout for that. And we have a lot of other exciting things coming down the pipeline. So I hope you guys are looking forward to that. And in the meantime, if you want to find us, you can find us online on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Crarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, our Instagram, Facebook, 
and TikTok. Those are all great places to find us. And if you've left us a review on iTunes or Spotify, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And if you have a couple seconds to spare and would like to go and leave us a review on either of those platforms or your favorite podcasting platform, we would really appreciate it if you could do that. It helps other people find our show. And finally, if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Becky, Z, Matthew, Allie, Megan, Nina, Jordan, Natalie, Andrew, Kara, Irina, Alexa, Benjamin, Brad, Molly, James, Emily, Ian, Sophia, and Jessica. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time... May the force be with you. May the force be with you.